Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. People tend to start off really, really cranking, doing, quote, everything perfect until life happens. And um, one of the coolest things about having a practice-based perspective is that practice is, is flexible, right? You can play guitar every day and get better at playing guitar. You could play guitar three times a week and get better at playing guitar, right? You don't have to practice an eating skill every single meal or every single day to get better. You just have to practice consistently. That was Josh Hillis on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more. Join us wherever you listen to podcasts. I am here with Katie Rothfelder, who is our dissemination coordinator. And we thought we'd bring her on because we talk a lot about Praxis, how Praxis sponsors this podcast. They offer online continuing education for professionals, everything from DBT to ACT training to compassion-focused therapy. And Katie's had some personal experience with Praxis that I think would be helpful for you to all learn about. Yeah, Diana, I started out with Stephen Hayes Act Immersion Program, and that was really my first chance to get, you know, really into ACT. And then since then, I've had these kind of on-demand course 
opportunities. Um, the one that really sticks out to me is Lou Lasbugato's Feedback Enhanced ACT course, which was this really beautiful mix of instruction for really difficult ACT concepts and then in-depth learning with practice. That grew my muscles as a, a brand new clinician so much. So if you are interested in taking a Praxis course, go ahead and go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and we have a discount code for you for some of the live courses. Check them out, Praxis Continuing Education. Hey, listeners, if you've loved learning about acceptance and commitment therapy on the podcast and you're a clinician who wants to incorporate more ACT into your clinical work, I have just the training for you. I'm offering my Breakthrough ACT Techniques and Experiential Exercises, a clinical roadmap to help clients overcome psychological distress through PESI. This is an on-demand training that you can access at my website, jillstoddard.com learn. This is an interactive way to really bring your clinical work, especially your work with ACT, to the next level. You will get six CEs, and I hope to see you there. Well, it's almost the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. We are excited that you're here today to listen to our final episode of 2021. It's been quite a year. And I know that for many people, you know, the end of the holiday season with all the extra goodies and the holiday stress and then moving into those New Year's resolution is a time when a lot of people take a look at their health habits and maybe want to do a little work around their eating behaviors, healthy eating habits, and also around getting a little bit more active and physically fit. So I'm here today to introduce an episode with Josh Hillis. And Josh is someone who really bridges the areas of fitness. He's a personal trainer, has been for a very long time, and psychology. And he uses evidence-based psychology as a way to kind of bridge the two and to really help people who might not find the traditional fitness world very workable in their lives. And so I'm here today with Jill to introduce this episode. Jill, what did you think? Well, Debbie, I loved this episode. First of all, I found Josh to be just such a positive presence. I thought, oh, I need him to be my coach. He just seems like he'd be so motivating. He's so enthusiastic. Um, and I appreciated so much of what he talked about. I have not read his book yet, but the whole time I thought, oh my gosh, I need to I need to go buy this book and read this book right away. And what I think I appreciated most was his discussion around using guidelines, not rules, and the importance of flexibility. And I think the reason that spoke to me, I mean, I can relate so much to all of this, but um, you know, I feel like when we set really rigid rules about what we think we should be doing, and a lot of that's based on, you know, culture and like you said, like the fitness industry and diet culture. But when you break a rule, I think that leads to, you know, guilt and feeling like you're a failure and creates so much internal struggle that it makes it much more likely. You know, one of the things you guys talk about is emotional eating. And so I think it actually makes us more vulnerable to, to emotional eating and can really just kind of create this cycle, you know, that's fueling itself versus when you have guidelines and flexibility. I think it's so much easier to maintain and persevere. Yes. I love that it's not so rule-based. It's because it's guidelines and skills. It's very compassionate, flexible. It's not so harsh and rigid where you feel like you have to follow it just right. And it's a major change maybe from where you're at now. And if you don't follow it just right, 
forget the whole thing. And Jill, I know this idea of eating skills fits with something you've been doing for a little while. Yes, it was something that I that I thought about as he was talking that I thought, oh, I'm actually practicing some of Josh's eating skills without even realizing it. Um, and, you know, he talks a lot about the importance of recognizing hunger and satiety cues. And in order to be able to do that skillfully, basically, you have to slow down and create more awareness. And so I have this acronym that I use. It's EATS, E-A-T-S. And the E stands for extra mindful. So pay attention and be aware. The A is always sit. And that came from, you know, if I'm preparing my kids dinner and I'm like picking off their plates, even though I'm not hungry, it's just something I'm doing mindlessly. Um, T is for tines down. So put my fork down in between bites, which he specifically talks about in the episode. And then the S is just slow down slowly. And so this acronym is my reminder to just sort of be aware, slow down. And that allows me to really tune in more to my body. You know, like, am I hungry? Am I full? What is it that I'm, um, well, let's just do to tune into my body. Am I hungry? Am I full? Etc. So I think that mapped on really nicely to some of Josh's eating skills. It is perfect. There's some overlap with the actual skills. And it it's really based on this idea that these are skills we work on over time. And sometimes maybe we don't, and that's okay, but you can always get back to it. It doesn't have to be so rigid. And I think this is where it's a little bit more sustainable in terms of maybe New Year's behavior change, because I think often people go a little overboard with how they're going to change everything and they get into something that's a little bit rigid and rule-based, but then if they don't do it perfectly, they give up on the whole thing. And this is just more sustainable over time, which I love. And I think that um, for me, one of the things that I've loved about Josh's work, I'm just working on getting more physically active. I think I got a little too sedentary during the shutdown phases of the pandemic where it was just- Well, we all did. Right. I was not one of those people who coped by like over-exercising, right? Right. Uh And I think even the fact that none of us were, you know, like so many people are working from home where, you know, when we were in lockdown, even just the amount that we were walking to and from our office or in and out of Target, you know, there were so many ways we were moving our bodies that we suddenly weren't anymore. So it was, you know, it wasn't just a matter of not going to the gym. I think we all became more sedentary in, in a number of ways. Yeah. Right. You're just sitting at your computer so much of the day. So many of us who who telework. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, Josh's work has really helped me, first of all, at a very practical level, come up with some doable, simple exercises I can really easily embed into my daily life, but then also just overcome some of those challenges where even if maybe like last night, I did exercise for 30 minutes, but I didn't really feel like it. I was not really in the mood. And yet I was able to kind of have a little bit of willingness and go ahead and do this thing that was hard. And I think um, it's it's motivating because it's flexible in that regard too, right? Like we're not always going to have two hours to go to the gym and back, but we can still find ways to be more active in our daily lives. And then when we don't, we don't. And that's okay too. We're flexible about that. And then we just get back to it when when we're able to. Absolutely. Okay. Well, happy new year, everyone. And enjoy the episode. Our guest today, Josh Hillis, has a unique background bridging fitness and psychology. Josh, thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is super fun. This is super exciting. We were just saying when we jumped on, we feel like we know each other because we've both followed each other's stuff. We were in some professional 
groups together and that kind of thing. But this is our first time actually meeting. So it's kind of fun. It's super fun cool. This medium person. So Josh um, started out as a personal trainer in 2004. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is the creator and head coach of GMB Fitness's eating skills program and is back in school now at Metropolitan State University of Denver to study psychology and doing a thesis on contextual behavioral science and emotional eating. So we're definitely going to ask you about emotional eating today, Josh. Cool. Um, He won the psychology department's Promising Teacher of the Year Award as a TA. And his work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, Men's Health, the Denver Post, and he's also been writing a blog since 2007 and has some great posts on social media. And Josh, you're the author of two books, and your latest book, which I have a copy of right here, is Lean and Strong, Eating Skills, Psychology, and Workouts, which won the silver medal in the Benjamin Franklin Book Awards for Psychology and is a Colorado Book Award finalist. Congratulations. Yep. That's Thanks. awesome. Thanks. Really awesome. Um, and is it true that you're already kind of planning on another book down the road? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, there's going to be another book on um, specifically about emotional eating. That's okay. Like, Are you working on that now? When's that coming out? Um, kind, of, kind of, sort of. Um, it'll, it'll be a couple years. There's there are some things that I want to do first. There's, okay. um yeah, there, there are some things I want to do first. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. I get that because when I read your bio and I think about all the different things you're doing, I think, wow, you must be busy. <laughs> I am busy. Yeah. I, I do a lot of things. One of the things that's really interesting to me about your work, Josh, is that you kind of bridge these two worlds, right? The fitness world yeah. and the psychology world. And I know some people, you know, in psychology who study health behavior change and that kind of thing. And I know some people who are more in the fitness world and personal trainers, but rarely do I meet a person that kind of bridges those two. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. I I think, I think that, I think that we can have a much uh, kinder and more effective fitness industry if we brought in a little bit of little bit of modern psychological theory. Well, how has it been helpful to you to have, you know, you've been doing this work in, in personal training and fitness for a long time. How has your psychology expertise been helpful to you in your work? Oh, it's, it's, it's been, it's been essential, right? Um, like I started studying psychology because um, I wanted to make a difference for more people, right? When I when I started as a personal trainer, I worked for a company that gave um, that gave meal plans to uh, that had a registered dietitian put together meal plans and give that to the clients and and we tried to um, have people follow that you know and count calories and, and all that kind of stuff and it worked for a small percentage of the clients we got and it didn't work for a lot of others and um, none of us really knew why you know like. Actually, very few, very few people there were even like asking the question of like, why can't we help more people? They were kind of like, how do we get rid of the people we can't help faster? Mm, but I was interesting. like, but I was like, how can we actually help these? You know, and um, and that's when I started looking into like better coaching practices. And a, a friend of mine's like, what you're doing is kind of like motivational interviewing. And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, oh, this is kind of like this. And I'm like, oh, what's the self determination thing? And realizing that, like, oh, if I if I get really good at supporting clients' autonomy, competence, and relatedness, um, 
they actually sort a lot of this stuff out for themselves. And so it was like, it was kind of a matter of necessity. The fitness industry is really good at making a difference for like a really small slice of people. And um, we need to get at least a little bit into, into behavior and intrinsic motivation if we want to, if we want to help more people. Well, I think that's really important. And I think we will talk a little bit more about what is helpful as we go through this interview. Um, I just, I kind of want to break this down a little bit more because you've been pretty open in social media and podcast interviews about how your practice and your thinking around this has changed. Um, Could you kind of walk us through like where you started and where you are now? Yeah. So, um, so, so like, like I was saying, when, when I started, I was, I was with a company that was giving out meal plans, right? And I started with having people count calories and, and that, that worked for some people. And then like clients would bring in like, Hey, I want to try this diet. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Like I couldn't recommend diets, but clients always brought in diets that they wanted to do. And um, so I got to see a lot of clients do a lot of diets and see like, okay, so none of that makes any difference. <laughs> Um, you know, like just, just even anecdotally, like this was before I got into the research on that. None of the differences between diets made any difference. It was pretty clear just looking at my clients that like the people that can follow a diet can follow a diet and and it doesn't matter which one. (laughs) And then everyone else struggles with that. And so I started looking at, okay, what, like, what is making a difference for people? And, And at the time I was framing it like habits and I was like, okay, so if, if they're keeping this food journal, like here's where they're hitting obstacles. How do we like pull out the habits that'll make a difference? And I started getting really into habits and I started getting really into like obstacle planning. And um, that helped also, but even, even framing it in terms of habits still gave people this kind of like perspective, like they were either climbing or sliding, like they were either like, like on their habits or off their habits and, um, and eventually that's why I got to skills. Cause like, um, my original background was teaching movement and I was like, what we're doing is actually more like a skill. Like this is more like learning guitar than it is like following a rule or even, or even like building a habit, right? Like being able to check in with my own hunger and fullness cues is a, like, that's a, that's a skill. And so that's, that's kind of how I got here. And then, and then, um, just again, like all of the stuff on, um, on motivation, like when I started off in the beginning, I, like, I thought that like, like goal setting was how motivation worked and, and, uh, like kind of silly things about people finding their why and, or and even clients would be like, Hey, I want to reward myself or punish myself. Like, does that sound cool? And I'm like, I don't know. Um, and, um, that's where, that's when I really started to get into like self-determination theory and loves of motivation, realizing like reward and punishments over here and like values are over here. And there's this continuum in the middle. And, and, um, and that's, that's kind of how I got to here was um, bouncing off a lot of things that didn't work and trying to pay attention to what did work. And then, um, and then about 10 years ago when I really started reading a lot of research and textbooks and when I realized I did go to school for psychology. <laughs> right. You, you kind of realized there was a lot of knowledge out there that could be applicable. And that's where I think being yeah. that bridge is so helpful because I think that, yeah. and honestly, you know, you're usually on fitness podcasts and that yeah. kind of thing. And here you are in a psychology podcast. And, and I mean, I think that, that the things that the two have to offer each other is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So in your, because I think as a psychologist, I've learned more about some of your stuff, literally on how to do weight training. Oh yeah. 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 Eating skills themselves, which are so helpful. Um, But I want to 
to to acknowledge something here that I, I'm just I want to hear your thoughts on this because honestly, when we talk about things like weight loss and dieting and that kind of thing, this is a very divisive oh, topic. Yeah. People are very opinionated. On the one hand, we have diet culture and kind of rigid dieting rules and and really an emphasis on weight loss. But on the other hand, side, there's this more like, you know, anti-diet body positivity movement. And they're very, yeah. very polarized. So where do you come into this? And, and what's your stance related to that? And honestly, I'll just say really quickly, like we've had people on the podcast talking about health behavior change and, and habits and that kind of thing, yeah. kind of are on different places on that spectrum. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um so I love that you said spectrum, which is something that doesn't get acknowledged and um and is actually like a big hole in the research and is actually what I'm one of the things that I'm that I'm trying to do some some research on right now. Um but um but yeah, so like like on one side we've got intuitive eating and and health and size and on our side we've got like rigid dieting and like straight up fat phobia. And um I think that the thing that the thing that we need to acknowledge is that um, that it's it's population dependent. There's a sliver of people that actually do really well with rigid dieting. It's small, but that exists. And so, and I always like to say that because a lot of times people have a friend <laughs> that like does well with that. And then there's other people that like really should not be playing the game of weight loss at all. Like it's it's just not a, it's just not it'll, it's always takes them down a bad path. Oh, it can be um, dangerous for people. Or, absolutely. And they can feed into fat shaming and fat phobia. Yeah. To- totally. Totally. So the other side, like intuitive eating and haze is, is I'm, I'm so glad it exists so that there's a, so that there's an alternative. Right. Um, but what we don't have a lot of is stuff in the middle, right? Like what if someone, what if someone's relatively grounded about, um, about body and food and they, they want to lose weight and they want to do it in a way that's not going to like dramatically decrease their well being. They don't have a lot of options, right? Cause if, if they want to lose weight, the only option is, is, is really rigid and, and often really fat phobic. Yeah. Right. And so, um, what I'm trying to sort out is, um, where to be in the middle. Right. And so I think if, if we have a continuum that there's like intuitive eating and the eating skills are like towards that side, but they're not intuitive eating, right? You know, and then like on the other side, you've got rigid dietary restraint and then a little bit towards the middle, you've got like flexible dietary restraint, right? And so where I, where I think eating skills fall in the continuum is um, closer to intuitive eating. Um, but because we have the guidelines and we've got some structure and because we do allow for people to have weight loss as a goal, it's, it's absolutely not intuitive eating. And, and that, that actually is exactly what I'm trying to do research on is I'm trying to quantify where this falls and, um, the research out there is kind of limited and not great. And we've got some hint, I've got some hints about where it's at. Um, which is, which is why I, I think I know where it is on that continuum, but I'm, I'm trying to sort it out for sure. Um, but I mean, to get really nerdy, it eventually will take better measurement tools. And like, that's a whole other monster. Right. Well, it's so complicated. I just, I want to just appreciate your stance on this because I think it's where I live. And I think maybe a lot of our listeners, I think we're going to release this episode around new year's and I'm not into dieting culture. I think it can be really, 
I've never been into that. And I think it can be very toxic. And I do not advocate that. And your book just really, you actually go through different diets and like why they are not great. They're too rigid. The the, the first chapter is don't diet. Yeah. (laughs) That's the first chapter. And I've seen so many people that just, you know, it's just not good for them to be doing that for so many reasons. But at the same time, like, I mean, I think a lot of us during the pandemic, I mean, we got these delicious hazelnut cookies in the house and I kept like, I know, I know they're good, right? But I just like kept eating them all the time. And it was like, why am I doing this? You know, and it's like, I do care about my health and I want to, you know, I want to be conscious of nutritious food and exercise and that kind of thing. So it's kind of like, I think I live in that middle ground and I find it really helpful. I think the kind of, I appreciate the anything goes kind of approach too, that it is a loosening up of that culture. But at the same time, it's, you know, I don't really feel like it's very values consistent for me when I'm in that place in my own life. Um, And I think around New Year's, a lot of people are maybe like, okay, you know, we've been through this pandemic. It's, it's hard and maybe I want to like work on this a little bit. And that's where I think your wisdom is so wonderful. And I, and I love that you said values consistent because that's the whole thing. The whole thing is, can we build up the skills to be able to eat consistently with our values? Right. That's the whole jam. And, um, and, and really when people start comparing like what they're, what they're at, like what their values are, And also the different areas of like things that matter to them in their lives versus like societal standards of beauty. That's where we start um, getting at changing behavior without necessarily going towards um, like all that like negative diety stuff. Yeah. It's like sometimes people change their behavior, but the reason isn't really necessarily values consistent. Yeah. Yeah, they're changing the behavior because they've been made to feel guilty or they've got like their con- like their self-esteem is contingent on you know doing behaviors that they think will lead them towards a body image that they think will help them avoid feeling bad. <laughs> right, and I mean I there's a whole, we could have a whole another episode on this, but I think sometimes that shame piece, right? If someone oh, totally. gets into that place like that just that's not a good place to be, right? It, it's it's terrible that the diet industry tends to make people feel like that's what they should pull from for motivation. Yeah. It's, it's not effective long-term and even if it's effective in the short term, it's not great for your well-being. <laughs> well said, Josh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's leave it at that and we'll save more comments okay. on that for later. Okay, okay. cool. So your book, um, Lean and Strong, is yeah. not just about the title, right? It's not just about a body type, lean and strong, although you do have eating skills and you have some workouts in there. But yeah. it's really also, it also has another meaning, which is the psychological meaning. So could you talk yeah. to us about what what's lean and strong means from a psychological perspective? Yeah, lean's just being like efficient and agile in pursuit of your goals. And um, uh, efficient, agile, flexible. I, I, I forget what, it, <laughs> but it's but it's in that world. And then being strong is just um, doing what matters to you, even when it's hard. It's it's one of those things where it's like, can we be um, can we be behaviorally flexible, right? And can we do um, so? Can we make different decisions in different situations? And are we able to make decisions aligned with what matters to us, even when we are? Um, stressed out or tired or bored you know yeah yeah struggling yeah it's it's like staying values consistent even when it's hard to do so yeah yeah but in a flexible way 
Yeah. So I mentioned this, this episode is going to come out somewhere around New Year's. And I think, again, a lot of people really try to kind of get back into the groove with healthy habits after the holidays around the New Year's. And we know, right, that people sometimes start strong, but then fizzle out. Um, What would you say to someone who really wants to kind of work on eating skills in the new year and wants to be, wants it to be sustainable? What do you recommend? So the, the, the biggest thing is being, um, is being realistic about your schedule and stress level and being flexible with your practice, uh, like week, week to week or, or even day to day. Right. So people tend to approach these things with like a very, like, again, like diet world teaches this sort of like all or nothing perfectionism, you're on or you're off, you know? And, um, and so people tend to start off really, really cranking, doing quote, everything perfect until life happens. And, um, you know, how long does that normally take three to six weeks before like they have a tough week at work or, um, kids get sick or something happens or, or maybe it's something fun. Maybe they have like a, like a, a wedding to go to or something like that. And they can't follow the diet rules in that situation. And, um, and so they drop off completely and they will start again later. Now, one of the coolest things about having a practice-based perspective is that um, practice is is flexible, right? Like you can play guitar every day and get better at playing guitar. You could play guitar three times a week and get better at playing guitar, right? You don't have to practice an eating skill every single meal or every single day to get better. You just have to practice consistently. So um, someone, when they're super excited, super stoked about it, beginning of the year, they might practice their eating skills two meals a day, you know, and they might practice like four at a time. And, um, and then, you know, somewhere, let's say week six, something comes up or even just like that excitement that started them off on it starts to fade. And they're like, Oh wait, this is work. Right. Cause it, it is. It's hard. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Then, um, you can actually dial it back. You can actually go like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to practice one meal a day or I'm going to practice two meals a day, but I'm only going to work on, like two skills instead of four, you like you can make those kinds of adjustments and stay in it. And when people get good at like, oh, right now I can do more, and other times I can do less, then um, then they get off that roller coaster of on and off, and and it um, it becomes really sustainable. You know, I think that's so. I just love that. It's so encouraging. And I'm going to just tell a quick anecdote here, which is yeah. that when we were. I don't know if you remember this, but we were corresponding to set up this interview. Yeah. And I told you I've been trying some of the, the strength exercises in your book. And I was yeah. like, I even was a little bit harsh on myself. I was like, I'm not doing as much as I should. Your response just made me feel so good because you're like, that's great that you're doing it. Like you're busy. You know, you're, I see great results when people just keep at it, even if it's just a little bit here and there. And I was so, I don't know, it just helped me keep going because it's like, it doesn't have to be like I'm, doing this five days a week or nothing. You know, it's like, yeah, I do it when I can once in a while. And it's okay if it's not like the biggest thing in my life, you know, it just, I think that that really is sustainable. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm so, I'm so stoked that that was, that was helpful. Um, but like that, that's a thing we do. Like we're kind of, we're kind of taught by the fitness industry that we're never doing enough. Right. And it's actually okay to look at like all the different things we have in our lives and be like, oh, this is an important thing. This is an important piece, 
And like, I've got all these other things that are important and like what actually, you know, is, is a couple times a week enough is like, you know, I mean, like it, it's, it's people get really strong doing twice a week. Like it, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And maybe it's not the most important thing in your life. You know, of course it's not. I mean, like, like, are you a pro athlete? Then it's the most important thing in your life for the rest of us. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. my, this is my career and it's not. Yeah. Cause I think that sometimes that's portrayed like it is the most important. Yeah. Okay. So, um, tell me about emotional eating, which we've, we've alluded to a couple times and you're doing yeah. some research on this. And I, I just think this is really important. Um, I, I was going to ask you, what is emotional eating as if I don't know, from my <laughs> <laughs> of course I do it. Right. Um, but, like, what do you think? I mean, how can people be aware of emotional eating and what do you recommend around that? I mean, I think most people have a sense of it because we've all probably done it from time to time. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm be like, what is it? Like, as if. <laughs> well, no, it like, it's actually an important question because a lot of people still think about it in terms of food. Right. And it really doesn't have a lot to do with food. Um, it's, it's just a matter of like having an uncomfortable internal experience and wanting to avoid it. And food becomes the go-to way to do that. That's it. You know, like you have some thoughts that are uncomfortable. You have some emotions that are kind of low. You had like, you know, and, yeah. and, and food actually really works. Food works really well. <laughs> Yeah, pizza at the end of a stressful day or, you know, my hazelnut cookies when I'm bored at three o'clock, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it totally works. So the trick is, it's just, um, it, it's actually even fine to do. You're allowed to emotionally eat. It's just, The issue is when it becomes our, our only coping strategy, right? So if, it, if it's our go-to, then we end up eating a lot more than we want and that we need, right? And it's, it's one of those things where when we start to sort that out, then people can get like, oh, you know what? Like the chocolate chip cookies my kids bake, I want to eat. But the chocolate chip cookies um, that I eat after my, you know, after this project was really stressful, like maybe I actually don't want it. Maybe I want to find some other ways of coping with that. Um, and so then we look at like, how, how, do we, how do we be with those, right? Like, like how do we be with those internal sensations? How do we... Um, the game we start playing is can we notice our thoughts as just thoughts? Like we're watching them on TV. Can we notice that emotions change like the weather in its own time? We don't have any control. And like, can we make space for that? Um, and um, can we, can we just notice that like, it's, it's 100% entirely normal to crave delicious food. And um, can we let those cravings like build and crest and, and fade? And um and so we always look at emotional eating uh, three ways. There's, um, you know, like like what are the what are the cognitive strategies for being with it? Like, can I accept it? Can I normalize it? Can I learn how to notice it and get a little bit of perspective on it? And then there's the self care perspective, which is like, do I just need a little bit of self care right now? Like, am I am I having the muffin because I really need a break? Could I just take a break? Because humans need breaks sometimes. <laughs> Um, and then the third way is actually both. Can I notice and be with it and allow it to be there and take care of myself just because humans need to be taken care of? Yeah. I love that's such a great example of how you kind of 
build in the psychology. And I know we both share an interest in acceptance and commitment therapy and contextual behavioral therapy. And I think when I have a client that's really in a pattern of that, and there does tend to be shame around it and, you know, guilt, but it's, it's that sitting with discomfort. It's like being with those emotions that you're, you know, that are driving the eating behavior, the emotional eating behavior. It's really, it's really a tough thing sometimes for people. Yeah. And it, it, it's it, like in the fitness industry, it's really, there's really a heavy bent towards like, think positive and everyone's shiny and happy on social media. And, and so even just normalizing it, even just like, I, I'm amazed at how many, um, how many clients are just like, it's, it's not what they've been told by other people in the fitness world that it's actually like normal to be, to be down sometimes. And, and I'm, I'm always saying that it's normal to be sad when sad things happen. It's normal to be frustrated when frustrating things happen. It's normal yeah. to be bad when, you know, it's normal to even be low for no reason. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, yeah. And I think even what you just said, that it's okay to emotionally eat sometimes. I think sometimes we need to build in more flexibility and more maybe awareness and intention to it, but there's no crime going on here, but that must make you a bit of a, like a rebel in the fitness world. Does it? Oh, that's totally a rebel. Yeah. 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 No, no one is saying that. No, no one is saying that at all. But, um, but I think, um, I was just reading something the other day about, um, like just using multiple coping strategies is is typically healthier and more effective you know and so even 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 though even though emotional eating is like the wrong one or the one people are trying to get away from like it's totally a, like a great tool to have in the toolbox mm-hmm. yeah and and for, for, for everyone that's listening i did air quotes when i said the wrong one i just want you to know that like <laughs> Thank you. Yes, thank you. I can see you on video, Joshua. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to be clear on that. You don't yeah. actually think it's wrong. Hi, everybody. This is Diana, and I'm thrilled to share with you something that could really help you become more psychologically flexible in the new year. I have a course for you. Many of you are interested in learning more about acceptance and commitment therapy and how to apply it to your life. And I'm offering a Foundations of ACT course that is a virtual self-guided deep dive into ACT. This course is for the general public, but also for practitioners who want to learn more about the six core processes of psychological flexibility. You'll gain tools to unhook from challenging thoughts, cultivate acceptance and willingness, and take committed action towards what you care most about. So here's how it works. There are six modules to the course, and each module offers bite-sized teachings, meditations and visualizations, journal prompts, handouts, and experiential practices. You'll get a chance to take a pre- and post-self-assessment to check your growth in psychological flexibility. And the course launches on January 3rd. It's a great holiday gift for you or someone you love. And if you pre-register at drdianahill.com courses by December 15th, you get 50 off and entered in to win a free ACT Daily Journal. So go to drdianahill.com and register. And I'm so excited to take this journey into ACT with you. I want to talk a little bit about the eating skills and guidelines. I think people will have to check out your book to get the full picture of them. And I really recommend, I mean, your book's terrific. It, it bridges all of these things like actual exercises with eating kind of skills and guidelines with the psychology part. So to get the whole story, people have to check that. But I want to just kind of talk through a little yeah. bit about that. Um, 
And one thing I noticed about eating guidelines is that they're not rules, right? They're not super rigid um, and they're not, they're focused really more on the big picture. Um, So tell us, let's start here. Like why guidelines? Why do you kind of recommend it in that particular way? So I, um, uh, I used to work with a, with a um, registered dietitian who taught hunger and fullness uh, cues. Right. And so I, I did that for a lot of years and that, that was really cool. And um, when I, when I split off from working with her and I was doing my own coaching, I was, I like, I went back through a lot of my client notes and I was looking at my client notes and looking at like, okay, what, what am I doing? And, and, um, and I was kind of looking at like, like, am I like, am I actually mostly doing that system or am I doing something else? And what does it look like? And, and I realized that um, I was doing a lot of scaffolding for teaching hunger and fullness cues, like a lot, 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 lot. I realized that like, it was, it was super clear going, going through all my client notes that like, I was spending a lot of time setting up ways to make it easier for people to check in with, with their hunger and fullness cues. And and that's where the guidelines came from. So it's one of those things where like, um, it's cool to, uh, to be able to distinguish, um, hunger from stress, but, um, in the beginning, it really works to put in like a 10 minute pause, right? Like if you want to have a snack, you could put in a 10 minute pause and, um, that gives you that, that puts some separation in between like the stimulus of wanting a thing and actually deciding whether or not you're going to have it. And that also gives you the time to check in and use, and use a skill to distinguish between, you know, uh, and, and like the skill would look like, okay, am I, um, do I feel a hollow feeling in my stomach or do I feel something else? Do I, am I hungry for a complete meal or do I just want this specific treat? Um, and, uh, if I, if I pause, uh, does it build or does it fade? Right. Mm-hmm. And you can actually check in, but like putting in that guideline is, is like a, some really good scaffolding for being able to learn that skill. Right. And for, for like a lot of people, um, get it just from that guideline. Like if they pause, then all of a sudden they've got more room to make their own choice instead mm-hmm. of being automatic or like another, another guideline would be like putting the fork down between bites. And that's just a way to, um, that's just a way to like make a behavior out of slowing down eating. And it's one of those things where like, if someone's going to practice the skill of noticing when full and stopping, then we've got to eat slow enough to actually be able to do that. Right. Um, I mean, we, we don't have to, it really helps to <laughs> eat slow enough to be able to do that. And so like putting a guideline, like putting the fork down to bites makes you just do a skill of like noticing when full and stopping. Um, and those are just some of the examples, right? Like, um, you could eat a balanced meal, which would also help notice when full and stopping. You could eat without screens and that would also help in noticing uh, when full and stopping. You could do any one of those, or you could do all three of those. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of how the guidelines and, and it it's, it's important to, um, to say that the guidelines and the skills are, are hierarchical. So the, the skills always supersede the guidelines, right? So um, it's like one of the guidelines is having four to six hours between meals without snacking. And um, that's just like, if you're going to have a snack in there, you check in. It's not like, it's, it's not a rule. The, the checking in and seeing if you're hungry still supersedes that. So like your hunger and fullness cues always supersede the guidelines. It's just a way to like scaffold um, can I maybe reset the default or can I give myself a cue 
to check in. So I'm really glad. So thank you for that. You you kind of integrated a few examples in there. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the one about balanced meals every, you know, four to six hours-ish. Yeah. And this idea of snacking, because that's the one, It if when I say it out loud, it seems a little bit, I don't know, obvious, really. But <laughs> reading it in your book really helped me, which is just thinking a little bit more clearly about that idea of like balanced meals you know, at a pretty regular interval and then looking at snacks in that context, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's flexibility built into it. So like, Josh, first of all, could you tell us like, how do you define a balanced meal? So I really like, um, I really like uh, Harvard School of Public Health's healthy eating plate. Um, and I like, like when I think about a balanced meal, I'm kind of like taking Harvard School of Public Health's healthy eating plate and USDA's my plate and Canada's food guide plate and just kind of like looking at what they all have in common. And what they all have in common is that um, half the plates, uh, fruit or vegetables, um, a quarter of the plates, protein, a quarter of the plates, carbohydrates. And then um, they'll have some sort of guideline about uh, like healthy fats. And, and, and it's a little bit different depending on, on, on which one. Um, and for our purposes uh, and, and so like, like all those organizations say that that's healthy. Right. So that's cool. But for our purposes, we're just looking at like fullness and um, it really works to have balanced meals to, to notice when you're full and stay full. Right. Like um, to notice when you're full during a meal, it really helps to have protein, carbohydrates and uh, vegetables. Right. And some, some kind of fiber. Right. And then between meals to stay full, it really helps to have protein, fat and vegetables. Right. And so if you have a balanced meal, we're covered. Um, and then when we frame it like that, when we frame it like, oh, this is a tool to feel full, then there isn't any good, bad about it. There's no magic about it. There's like, we can go like, oh, you know what? Like I can eat a meal that doesn't have half the plate and fruit and vegetables. And I'm not like a bad person. It just may, I just may be a little more full if I had that. Right. Like it's, yeah. there's, there's, you know, yeah. So, that's that's the deal. <laughs> yeah, it's not so rigid. It's very flexible to, you know, if you're a vegetarian or if you're not, or if you're, you know what I mean? Like it's, you can be flexible with it. I think one of the things, let me just kind of tell you why this was helpful for me. My kids get home from school and there's that time of day when lunch was a long time ago and we eat dinner pretty late in my house, like for people with kids, like 6.30 or even seven sometimes. And I realized like, my kids are not eating for like seven hours in between. And I would give them this kind of small snack. And I was like, okay, now I don't always, you know, sometimes it's probably not super balanced, but it's like, let's have some cheese and crackers and snap peas or something like that, where it's like, it's actually going to help them because what was happening is everyone was getting like starving and crunchy. Oh, totally. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I almost look at that now as like a miniature meal. And I think you're, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I never snack after reading your books, Josh, but I think your, your advice was like more about, you know, just generally speaking, not just sort of like grazing around, but it's like, eat something that's going to actually kind of tide you over. Yeah. It's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's, it's not, about, and, and again, like, it's not about never snacking right? It's about like, how much snacking do we do that's unrelated to hunger or, or to our values? Right. Um, and then oh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up your kids. One thing that I would throw out there is that uh, the guidelines in this book are designed for adults. 
And that um, if someone's looking at stuff for their kids, I'd send them towards Ellen Satter's stuff. Right. And so um, kids uh, typically need snacks. They've got smaller stomachs and they're super active. (laughs) Yeah. They're very um, different beasts, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, and then that's that's the other thing. Like before, I was talking about that there's a hierarchical relationship between um, the the eating skills and the guidelines. Uh, there's actually another level, which is your values. So it, it actually goes value, skills, and guidelines. So um, you could actually eat something even when you're not hungry because it fits your values. You know, like for instance. Oh, like um, I I mean. I was thinking about when um, when my wife and I were in Puerto Rico and we're walking by this place that we heard had great ceviche and we just had lunch like not that long ago and we stopped and got some ceviche, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it wasn't about checking in with our hunger and fullness cues. It was like, this will be rad. Like, let's let's do this, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, like if your kids bake cookies and bring them in and like eat, eat the cookies, if it's your values, if it's your friend's br- – I mean, you know, there, there's a million different things, right? Yeah. I wanted some examples just because it's like, this is not about total deprivation or, you know, being overly, yeah, overly rigid about it. Yeah. Like if, if, okay. So like if someone, if someone knows their values and like they chose, they chose like connectedness, then like being connected to other people is really important. And you can make eating choices just based on bonding with people that, that matters. Yeah. Matters to me. Yeah. So um, I'm glad just talking about the skills, it's interesting to think of it that way, because I think one of the things that sometimes happens is that we didn't really learn some of these skills earlier in our life for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe people didn't know about them or just, yeah. you know, we have parents who had their own struggles around this area, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think that looking at it as a skill, like, um, so with my kids is that I'm trying to help them notice their body sensations around hunger more just to kind of check in, not a big deal, really just to help them notice. Because I think sometimes we got some like unhelpful messages about like clearing your plate and that kind of thing as kids, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Clean your plate club. Yeah. So with, so sometimes we are told things like clean your plate or we have certain, we get into some unhelpful patterns around that. And I think it's a, it is really a skill during meals to pay attention to your hunger cues as a guide. Maybe, am I still hungry? Am I full? Instead of things like the clean your plate club. So what would you say to someone who wants to work on that, you know, during meals, being a little bit more mindful in terms of paying attention to their bodies? Yeah. Okay. So there's, um, there's, there are two components to the whole clean plate club thing. Um, one is learning to check in and, and trust your own hunger and fullness cues. And the other thing is also like dealing with your like thoughts about the clean plate club. Right. So, um, so the, the first thing, what we want to do is we want to um, actually just start playing the game of checking in with our, um, of like checking in with our stomachs and seeing how we feel, right? So we can start like middle of the meal, like actually just like pause for a minute and check in and go like, am I getting full? How's the rest of the food look on the plate? Um, like, does this look like it'll probably be the right amount? And then um, check in towards the end of the meal again and see like, am I getting full? Is this probably the right amount? How do I feel? Like actually check in with my stomach. So part of it's going to be trial and error. And so there's going to be a certain amount of like checking with my stomach, 
like looking at how much food I ate and thinking like, oh, that probably was enough. And then later finding out that it wasn't right. And you have to have a snack. And then, you know, and other times, um, like maybe you overshoot it. You're like, oh, maybe I feel a little too full or, or I don't get hungry for the next meal. And so, um, so part of it's just playing that game of like starting to check in and then seeing what happens. And you can even sort of flip it and go the other way and use that. Like, um, like, do I get too hungry before the next meal or do I feel too full in, in an hour or whatever, um, to see, uh, to sort of like help you narrow, like help you learn that skill. Right. So, um, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's also just being with all the thoughts around, um, and all the things we've been told around, um, clean play club. Right. And, um, we're going to have like, it's, it's typically kind of um, uncomfortable for, for folks. Um, maybe they were told that they should feel guilty if they didn't turn their plate, didn't clean their plate or that um, they're wasting food or all, all those things. And so there's, there's the logistics of managing that, right? There's, there's like, Oh, could I save this for, you know, breakfast tomorrow or something like that. Right. Where you're not wasting it or, um, but really what it comes down to is, uh, can I notice the thoughts around the clean plate club thing and notice that they were something maybe my parents told me because they wanted me to eat my vegetables or whatever. And maybe it made sense when I was six and maybe it doesn't make sense now. And, and being able to like notice and expect those thoughts to come up and be able to practice our skills and trust our body, even in the presence of those contrary thoughts. I, I heard Jason Lillis, who's been on the podcast before, oh, he yeah. has Act for Weight He's amazing. Um, yeah. issues. Yeah. And he I heard him talk one time in a workshop about the guilt, right? When we waste food yeah. or we throw food away. But we almost have to let go of that because, you know, it's like, okay, you're going to either eat it or maybe it goes to waste. But if you tell yourself you always have to eat it, it has to go into your body instead of the garbage can. Even if you're not right. hungry for it, it's almost like, well, it's not like it really goes to some greater purpose anyway. It's just going into your body. So it's it's like letting go of that guilty feeling. Maybe yeah. next time you just don't serve yourself as much or you make a smaller portion or something like that. But it's, yeah. it's almost like it's too late. That ship has sailed. <laughs> totally. Totally. I, I actually have had a couple clients that um, whenever they felt like they were wasting food, um, by not cleaning their plate, they would actually like make a small donation to, um, like a charity that feeds hungry kids somewhere. And, uh, and so, and I thought that was like a really interesting, um, and that was something that they came out, came up with out of their own, um, like looking at what mattered to them and their own values. And they're like, well, clearly this doesn't act, this actually like, like me eating, you know, this extra bite isn't making a difference. Is there something I could do that actually would? And I, I thought that was super, um, super creative, right? I love that. Yeah, it's tied to values. Yeah. And I want to say that for people who are interested, we have also had some episodes in the past on appetite awareness training. We have Linda Craig head on and some episodes about embodiment. So noticing your body and paying attention to things like hunger cues. Um, so you can check those out if you want to, if that's an area that you struggle with. And I think for a lot of us, we just almost override our body's cues. We don't pay attention. You might be really hungry and ignoring it because you're busy, but you also might be, you know, full and not noticing it. So it's a skill for sure. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, um, that's, uh, it's a, it's a practice yeah. and we can learn. And it's like, um, I like that with the workout stuff too, where, where it's like, can we actually like be with our body and can we check in and can we, <laughs> Well, you're psychic because I was about to tell you about the workouts <laughs> and how helpful. And I want to just talk to you about this a little bit because, you know, again, as a psychologist, this was the part that is unfamiliar to me. And I think I have done exercise. I've taken exercise classes, videos, all that stuff. And it never really made much sense to me. And I think with the pandemic, I had to figure out how to do some of this stuff on my own. Yeah. And what was so helpful, I think you helped me get the big picture of the major movements to be doing, you know, and I have my yoga mat and I have two kettlebells and I think four, four dumbbells, you know, two sets of dumbbells. Yeah. That's all I have. And based on your work, I have created a little routine. You know, I do like you recommend alternating even and odd days. And I had to kind of piece together what's going to work for me. Yeah. Um, so it's amazing. Yeah. Um, I just have to give you some gratitude for that because I find it really empowering to be able to just do it, I think, on my own a little bit better and to really understand it. Yeah. Yeah. So what like what was the big piece for you that like you hadn't gotten before that okay. you got now? Like, you yeah, have like, to help yeah. me out here, but this will be yeah. good for our listeners because I can't remember. But it was there's like these major movements that you needed to hmm. do, right? Like kind of an upper body pull and push. Can you help me out? Because I can't remember yeah, 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 now. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. So so most of the workouts are structured around a push, a pull, a squat, and a hip hinge. And so that's um it's kind of like if the body's big X, you've got like your you you know that that's how you hit it all. And um I, I think it's a great way to structure workouts and a great way to think about it and hit all the things and yeah. I mean, that was so helpful to me to because I've it always seemed kind of random to me. Like, oh, now I'm doing a lunge. Yeah. Now I'm doing a squat. Now I'm doing a, you know, whatever <laughs> arm well, thing I'm doing. A lot of them are random. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they probably were. The truth comes out, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, these, these workouts are structured around those big movements. And we've got kind of like a like a regular shift in, in rep ranges. Like we'll do a different rep range every month. And um, and there's uh, like depending on if you're working on higher or lower reps, we might focus on like, a, like an external cue. Like you might think about it in terms of like um, like pushing the ground away or pushing a weight up to the ceiling, like you're moving a thing towards or away from something else, which works really well for like strength and performance or um, for higher reps, we might be focused on like, what does this feel like inside? Like, where do I feel this working? Yeah. Which works really well for like being able to check in with what's working. Well, people can check that out, mm. out if they're interested in what I did as I kind of took your spreadsheet. I, I mean, I, I should like show it to you. You'll probably be amused by it because I, can you see that? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I like have an even day, even days and odd days. And it's all stuff I can do at home because some things are more like for the gym, but I, I made it all stuff I can do at home. And so it's just really helpful to me and I can do it at my own pace. And um, so people can check into that if they want to. And it seems like to me, it just simplifies it quick story is that my seven-year-old saw me doing it and she's like, I'm getting a snack. And she went and got a snack and heckled me the whole time. She's like, that's 
easy while she's sitting there eating a snack. But the beauty of it is that I can do it in my life, like when my kids are there. You know what I mean? I don't have to yes. drive to the gym. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Josh, you're clearly a busy person. You know, you have your your work, your day job as a you know trainer and fitness expert, and then you write these books and you're taking psychology coursework and so you're busy. How do you make exercise happen in your life? So um, what's really kind of funny is that there's how I've made it work like most of my adult life. And then there's how I make it work now. And it's completely the opposite. Um, Most of my adult life, I did the absolute minimum possible to hit my fitness goals. So, um, so really, which is, which is really weird as a trainer. Like that's not a normal, (laughs) normal way that most trainers relate to it. But, um, but like mostly, um, I've worked out like twice a week, sometimes three times a week. And, um, and I hit most of my strength goals just doing that. And, um, and that worked, um, because I'm, uh, <laughs> cause I'm, I, I, I was really struggling with, um, find like prioritizing working out that like, I always have a lot of projects. I have a lot of people that count on me. Um, there's always a lot to do and, um, working out actually felt kind of like self-indulgent or kind of selfish. And, um, and it was really hard to make myself or to, uh, to allow myself to do more than that actually. I'm just um, relating to what you're saying here. Cause to me, sometimes it does, it's like, Oh, I don't have time. I have to do this and this and that. And it's like, yeah, it's a time that I would actually, it would be great to be doing something that takes care of me, but I feel like I have to shortchange that. Exactly. Like exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, so that's, that's mostly what I did was just the, um, minimum, minimum effective dose. Right. Um, and, um, the pandemic kind of changed all that. Um, suddenly I wasn't leaving the house as much and was just super stressed out about a lot of things. And, um, and, uh, Oh, and, um, in my brain and behavior class, I did a paper on, um, stress reactivity and moderate exercise. And, um, and I was looking at like the, and, and I was considering the possibility that I might be a little bit more stress resilient with more frequent working out. And, um, and so what I've tried, I actually shifted the entire way I relate to working out. I don't have any fitness goals at all right now, other than like basic human maintenance, other than like trying to take care of myself. And, um, and so, and now I work out like six times a week and it's just a priority to, um, it's just that I, I realized that <laughs> I realized a couple things. One, if I put that in, the world doesn't explode. I didn't miss all my deadlines. People weren't mad at me. Um, I didn't let everyone down. Um, in fact, like tracking my productivity with things like rescue, rescue time and things like that. I, I've actually found that, um, <laughs> it sounds so obvious when I take better care of myself, I actually get more done. Um, but, a lesson um, we must learn again and again in life, right? <laughs> right. Like, oh yeah, it really helps me. Yeah, I don't have to do this more, right? Every time. Yeah. Ba- basic human maintenance. Who who knew? <laughs> like, um, sleep, movement, food. Yeah. Um, but um, but so like, I work out six, sometimes seven days a week. But it doesn't look like how most people I think envision working out. Um. I do uh, a, like I do some hard days, but a lot of medium and easy days, 
and I do a lot of different things. Sometimes I strength train. Sometimes I do a hard Peloton. Sometimes I do an easy Peloton. Sometimes I go for a walk. Sometimes I dance. Sometimes I go for a nice bike ride outside. So, you know, like I think, um, people tend to think of working out as like sweating and soreness and, and difficulty. And most of my workouts are pretty chill and they're really just about, um, me feeling good in my body. And, um, and so that's what it looks like now. And that's, um, just kind of funny, like how different it is from even two years ago. Well, it's a great model of psychological flexibility and, um, you know, just doing what works for the situation, but also how having that variety, I imagine makes it more sustainable. Yeah. So like I pick, um, I pick what I'm going to do based on, um, based on what feels like would be cool. Right. Like, like I try and get in a couple strength training workouts a week just cause I, I want to get that in, but like between like dancing and bike riding and, and Peloton, you know, I just do whatever seems, um, uh, like seems like it'd be good on the day. And then um, I'll warm up and see how I feel. And if I feel great, I'll rock out. And if I feel bad, I might call it early. I might do super easy. I might dial back the way, you know, like um, it's uh, it's really cool if people learn to, again, like um, pay attention to their body and be flexible based on like how they feel on a given day. Some days I don't, I don't have it to rock out. Some days I do. Well, and you're paying attention to your body's cues around when you're maybe too tired. We we just yeah. had an episode recently on the laziness lie and how we've learned actually to override those cues. Yeah. And like, I'm tired. And maybe actually that's yeah. a time to take a break, but we've almost trained ourselves that like, no, you must persevere no matter what. Yeah. I'm, I'm halfway through that book and I love it. It is so, so, so good. So um, good. And that, 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 actually, that actually does help. It does help when it's like, you know what? Maybe a 10-minute walk is all I've got today. <laughs> that's, that's better that's, than nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's going to help people sustain that in the New Year's if you are one of those people that's that's hoping to make some healthy healthy habits that stick. Yeah. Like, like look, look at how you can fit it into your life and look at how you can be flexible with it and you can keep it going. Exactly. Well, Josh, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on today. I've learned so much from you, from your book and just following you. How can people um, find you so that they can keep an eye on your, your work that is so inspiring? Thanks. Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm spending a lot of time on Instagram right now. So if they're into Instagram, uh, Joshua Hillis at Instagram. Um, I've got a blog, uh, It's getting neglected as I spend more time on Instagram, but there's like a thousand posts. So I'm sure you can find something useful. Um, and then, um, GMB fitness is, is where I, uh, do still write some articles sometimes cause I have that coaching program there. Great. Well, we'll link to all of this on the show notes for today. And I have to say, you know, Instagram sometimes gets a bad rap for giving people unrealistic, expectations, right? Um, it's so that social comparison thing, but yours is so encouraging and just kind of more of, of what you got today. So definitely check that out. Thanks. All right, Josh, so well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.